Welcome to Just a GP podcast. My name is Ashley Broomfield and I'm here with Dr. Nicola Holmes, who we met in a previous episode. So thanks for joining us again, Nicola. It's great to be back, Ashley. So um, what's your personal or professional highlight of this week? Oh, my personal highlight is definitely this afternoon when I took a couple of frames of honey and a display beehive into some kindergarten children and um, talked all about bees and we carved up honeycomb and ate it with sticky fingers. It was awesome. (laughs) So cool. Is that one of the ones where you turn the tap and it drips out or is it a full? full No, it's a... it's an it's just one frame out of an ordinary beehive that's then put into a double glass sided sort of display case so the bees can't get out but the kids can see it from both sides um, but it's not from a flow hive and is this from your farm it is it is we have a few just hobby you know few beehives um, and collect our own honey from that which is very rewarding so next time when I'm on the podcast, should I be saying my personal highlight was when I received a pot of honey from my friend Nicola? That would be perfect. <laughs> I get the hint. Okay. <laughs> honey coming your way. Um, so my personal highlight of the week um, was that we've started planning the program for a wellbeing weekend that the uh, New South Wales faculty is part of the RACGP is going to be running in March next year and you're aware of this program because you're going to be in it. Yes, it um, sounds sounds fantastic. It's very different to the ordinary kind of fact conference. Yeah, so we're going to be looking at different ways that practitioners can enhance their well-being and, and how that relates to consultations as well as the time away from their consults, which I'm really excited about. And um, the... It's a really nice kind of I finish up as the new fellows chair in the next month or so and, and then Rebecca Hoffman, who also is on this podcast with me, is going to be taking over and so it's a really nice way for me to finish out my time to have that um, event kind of um, starting off and, and getting the go-ahead. So I'm super excited. Excellent. You'll have to get them to listen to some of these podcasts. Well, yeah. So <laughs> we were talking about how sitting with a difficult consultation, you know, sitting with our own emotions, recognising how they potentially are impacting on the consultation, that can be really um, taxing. And I was chatting to my father about this and, and he said, it's, you know, it's really interesting when you're more present, you're more vulnerable. And that was a little light in my head where I went, that's really true. You know, the more engaged you are and the more there you are, it can be really rewarding because, you know, you come up with answers to questions that you didn't really need to ask because the the patient's coming out with them themselves or it can do the opposite where someone's in a really distressed state and you're present there with them and it can leave you feeling really distressed yourself. So that's what we're going to be talking about in this episode. I agree totally with you, Dad. I think 
the more present you are, the greater reward, but the greater cost. And I think that's something that doctors are very poor at doing is actually self-care. Often a lot of doctors come into the profession wanting to help people and they probably have a little bit of a rescuer style personality, like getting great joy and satisfaction out of helping others. And the difficulty with that is you're such high risk to burnout. Um, And if you look at statistics around doctors' mental health, um, doctors' suicide rates, doctors', you know, depression, you'll find that that's a lot higher than many other professions. And I think it's no coincidence that if you combine a personality that wants to help um, with a lot of emotionally taxing work, um, doing it well and being very present, that that's going to take out of your bucket of energy. And if your bucket of energy is empty, then you've got a really burnt out doctor. So we're not, our system that we work in as doctors is not really structured around self-care and looking after yourself. Uh, It's around working really hard, um, not having lunch breaks, um, being forever friendly and positive and flexible and fitting in anyone who needs to be seen and go, 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 go. And there's not really a culture from hospitals onwards about taking time to A, identify what you need to stay well and B, making time and space in your life for um, that whatever you need to stay well. And I guess um, talking at it from a personal point of view, I had a, a really significant depressive episode four or five years ago now and I, I'm sure that part of that was being burnt out and giving it all and you know dealing with lots and lots of difficult consultations and a very heavy mental health um, sort of practice load and not prioritizing space or time for me so out of that experience um, I've been really forced to bring up into consciousness how to keep myself well and prioritize my own mental health so that I can be present and vulnerable but cope with that in a consultation setting. Thank you for sharing that with us on the public record. That's really appreciated. Here's something that I've recognised lately, you know, having gone through some, I, I shared on the podcast in an earlier episode that I was doing IVF and I noticed that during those times that I was going through a stimulation cycle and you know receiving results of tests or you know had phone calls coming into my mobile and the way that it affects your your relationships in life or even seeing patients that were pregnant or having babies um, it really allowed me to reflect on how how hard it is to practice medicine when things aren't going right in your in your own world and not just the effect of consultations on on yourself but how things around you in your life can affect the consultation so I probably had the opposite experience that I actually realized how how much energy goes into our day-to-day work and when 
it's hard to have that energy put in from your own world, then it you see that affected in your clinical practice. You know, I noticed that not necessarily large mistakes, but I was I noticed that I was making more mistakes or looking over certain results that I'd then in another consultation going, why did I why did I not take why did I not think of that last time? And I realized it's because I was in this headspace that wasn't really truly present. Um, and so I think it kind of goes both ways. How does your life reflect on on your practice, but also how does how does your practice then relate to your life? I think they are totally intertwined. <laughs> you know, exactly. It can work both ways. And I think though, if definitely if you're not um well yourself in terms of you've got a lot of physical health or mental health or outside stresses happening it's very challenging not to have those affect your practice which is why it's when your goal is to be a good doctor it's even more important that you attend to giving time to your needs yourself in your outside world from the clinic setting um, so that you can bring the best of you into the consultation. And that's this whole concept of physician heal thyself, right? And Exactly. The one, one of the strategies that I utilised at that point in time is I work about half an hour from where I live mm-hmm. and I noticed that I was rushing a lot in the morning. In the mornings I take my dog for a walk and then I get home, have a shower, have breakfast, put my lunch box in and get everything sorted to then get in the car. And I was finding myself, I didn't have enough time to do all those all those things and I was skipping, you know, eating breakfast or skipping um, making lunch and then I would find myself at lunchtime with not much time to eat because time at like consults had run over and I'd be getting mm-hmm. chips from next door, <laughs> chips and gravy from next door and and then my time in the evenings was running over as well because I had paperwork to do and I wasn't getting home to go to the exercise classes that I really wanted to go to. And so a really simple thing that I did was just change my consultation time. So I started half an hour later in the morning and finished half an hour earlier because I realised that I needed that extra time to sort all that stuff out and it didn't make that much of a difference in terms of um, you know, in terms of fee-for-service type billings and it really helped me to be a lot healthier in terms of my nutrition um, and exercise but also have the energy to consult for the morning. Exactly. What you're kind of demonstrating there, Ashley, too, is is authenticity. Like it's really important if we're going to ask our patients to, you know, eat well, exercise well, prioritise a bit of space in their life, it's it's hard for us to do that if we're not actually living that authentically. And I think patients get a sense of when you're walking the walk, talking the talk, and you're actually embracing what you're, you're modelling what you're um, asking them to do in their own health as well. It's such a simple thing, shifting that consultation time. You know, sometimes changing your bookings to allow 
I've I've changed my Wednesday afternoon booking so I I have a an opportunity to work later on a Wednesday because my children are all off at scouts and there's no urgency for me to be home but I don't book late I book you know my standards finishing time and then I've got this really flexible bit of time that I could put follow-ups or I could work into that I have really ultimate control over that booking time and that's allowed a lot more flexibility in my work day so changing your booking times changing the length of your bookings you can really play around with that you we actually have control over that and another thing I've just found recently which is sort of counterintuitive I was talking with our practice manager And we've noticed that I actually bill better in terms of generating the practice money when I see less people, which is really sort of counterintuitive. But when you're not so rushed and not so stressed, you have time to do paperwork for things that may generate a bit more billing. So it's, you know, I think um, working out what the schedule that is manageable for your style of practice, your style of patience, and again, maybe what you know, what time should I be starting on each day of the week that may vary and finishing on each day of the week can make a huge difference to your sense of enjoyment at work and sense of well-being. Mm. And I guess that's a lot easier us as independent, fully fellowed GPs that the registrars don't necessarily have in their training to start a little bit later and finish a little bit earlier because they may have to meet their Uh, 38 hours but one of the real beauties even that I found comparing my training with so my registrar training in general practice versus some of my friends who trained in hospitals and you know I got lunch breaks even if they were only short and I didn't have to work every weekend and I wasn't doing on call and after hours and you know I was able to go to the gym after work or spend time with my family when I wanted to which is a real luxury and it seems silly for people who don't know what medical training is like or medical practice is like but it can be really hard to say I'm not going to stay back and I'm not going to push myself to the nth degree of what I can capably do within my own world because I do need to give that time to myself because we have this culture of seeing as many people as you can so that you can help as many people as possible you know not in hospital for example you need to kind of make sure that you're getting through all your tasks and that you know there's not too much happening and you might have a 10 minute lunch break and you may have a little bit of time to go to the toilet and wee (laughs) but you definitely don't have time to relax on the toilet and you know you've it's very busy 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 time 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 and you they're so easy in our culture of how we train and practice that you can get really caught up in that and I think that's really a gift that we have as general practitioners that if we want to we can actually change that. I agree totally and and even as registrars listening to you there actually I think registrars can have some control over putting in an extra rest break you know, in the morning or afternoon or negotiating around what their lunch break is going to look like within their practice. And most of the training providers will also allow for some part-time work. So again, it's one of the few medical specialties that you can train reasonably easily in in a part-time setting. So 
we do have a lot of flexibility, but you're right, the culture is not one of um, encouraging people to work less and have more self-care. It's a culture of work hard, 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 give, 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 go, 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 which is ultimately, I think, not in the patient's best interest if we do that. Yeah. So should we talk a little bit about boundary setting? Because I think that's really important and I think the more that I work with this, um, the easier it is and... I remember I read a book at the start of my registrar training and it was mostly around time management. But one of the things that I really took away from it, there was two really key points. One was set your intention in terms of the way that you want to practice from the beginning. So if you don't want to be phoned during your consults, then, you know, put in the do not disturb thing on or make it clear to the practice that you know you don't want to be interrupted during consults or you can take the phone off the hook even because we've got internal messaging if people really need to talk to you they'll knock on the door and um, open the door up and you know if you don't want to be have have people fit in in your day and, and you want to dedicate you know if someone's booked a time slot with you and you want to dedicate that whole time slot to that person then saying no to fit-ins can be really important or having a time in the day where you see fit-ins dedicated rather than fitting it in amongst your normal schedule. And so this idea of if you want to kind of, if you want to practice in a certain way, setting that up and doing it from the beginning because once you've set up behaviours, it can be really hard to change. And the second component of that, which I thought was really key, is don't adjust your intention compared to what you're putting out to your staff in terms of things. So if you say to your staff, look, don't don't fit in patients in with me, but then you fit in the patients in with you yourself, then they think it's okay. They think that you've changed, you've changed your approach. And um, so being really clear and following through with that behaviour yourself, you know, not just saying everybody else must treat me in this way, but also treating yourself with that same care and respect. I, that's been something that I have to continually come back to but has been super helpful for me from the beginning in terms of boundaries. Do you know, I think I should have read I should have read that book when I started actually. <laughs> um, listening to you talk, uh, they're fantastic kind of tips. I think it's really challenging in medicine to um, – hold your boundaries really firmly and I think the tension there is between wanting to help someone which is fit that person in I'll see that person etc and the tension between I need to look after myself because I need that space or I want to give more time to the next consultation or it's about the competing needs between the patient and yourself. And I don't think there's a script that's um, sort of perfect for that or sort of clear around that because situations change and one of the things I think that's important as a doctor and I'm probably too much like this is having some flexibility 
Uh, you see every day different things walk through your door and I think you need to be flexible so that if you've got someone in front of you with, say, high, a lot of suicidal thinking and intent, then you need to be able to create enough space to deal with that well. So that involves flexibility. The flip side of being flexible is that you're not holding as firm boundaries to the way that you're aiming to practice that's maybe more supportive of your own needs. And I don't think there's a a recipe for how to manage that. But what I would say I've learned over the time that's really helpful, important, is just bringing up into consciousness when you're doing something differently or when you're bending a boundary and what like doing that very consciously for a a reason at that time. I think that can really help. Not that you should never bend a boundary, but just being really aware of where your boundaries are and when you're bending them for what particular reason. I totally agree with your, your comments about not adjusting your intention. I think that can be very confusing for reception or other staff if you say do this and then you 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 do differently yourself that comes back to the concept of being authentic and practicing what you're preaching Hmm. I think what you're what you're saying what we're kind of sharing is this balance between concreteness and or and flexibility yes you know I, I kind of see it as and I totally understand and agree with what you're saying you know there are if you start with this base of the structure of how you'd like to practice things and you go okay I'm going to be unmovable and I'm just going to say no and then a poor little sick three-week-old baby will come through at five o'clock <laughs> and you're like oh, I have to I have to see this baby exactly. and uh, there's this good balance there between having that structure whereby you can be flexible you know mm. if if you're not fitting in people all the time yes it's easier to fit in the people when you need to exactly or if you're running to time most of the time because you're doing the fabulous consultation skills that we talked about last podcast in terms of upfront agenda setting and, you know, setting out tasks and things that you're going to discuss at the beginning so that you've got an idea about how things are going to go and that means that you're, you're running on time, then it's easier to be able to quickly run into the nurse's room or pick up the phone or deal with, somebody who's presenting quite traumatised needing an extended consultation where that then is not putting you back a lot, lot later than you were initially to begin with. Yeah, I think I think doctors in general are um, often make the mistake of feeling that it's up to them to save the world or that they need to sort of, you know, make themselves super available, be everything to all people. And it took me a while to realise that if I worked, you know, 20 hours a day, seven days a week, there would still be people knocking on the door saying, can you do a bit more? And so letting go of that, I have to, I'm the only person who can, you know, this sort of concept that it's up to you and slowing down your practice a bit so that there's space in it for flexibility is really important. Um, Especially if you're the sort of person who is going to want to 
say yes and do a little bit more, it's very important that you're not totally overbooked and exhausted. And that if there's a bit of space in your day, then being flexible becomes enjoyable and it doesn't burn you out. Yes. And that comes down to recognising the, the fit between yourself and the practice that you're in. Exactly. And I guess that's why I've, I've ended up drifting into working just at Headspace at the moment because I've found over the last oh, nearly 20 years <laughs> that in, in practice I end up with a large mental health um, group because that's my interest and my passion and I end up doing longer consultations and that I've found the way for me, the best fit for me is a practice where the consultations are booked half hourly and, you know, it has a little bit of federal funding that enables you to be able to see vulnerable populations and bulk bill them and still the business to work. So I think it is really critical that you find a practice that operates in a way that suits your style of working and you'll attract patients that like your style of working. And if all those stars line up, you've got the patients that like your style of working and a practice that systems support you to work in a way that's um, healthy for you and not overwhelming, then that is, that's ideal. And if, you, if you're trying to jam square pegs into round holes, um, it becomes, you know, more stressful on your own um, health and well-being as the practitioner. Hmm. I like this concept that you brought up of consulting in a way within a practice that's working well for you. This idea, this really changed my my kind of approach to things because... And one of my other supervisors, um, I'm not sure if it, I'm not, I don't think it was unique, but I think it was my other supervisor at the time, but at a similar stage in my training, um, it kind of said, you know, be really happy with how you're practicing now. Don't worry too much about, you know, you can get, it can get really hard when you're thinking that things aren't going very well in consultations and, you're going, what is, what's going on? Like, what's happening? What am, what am I doing wrong that's not kind of working in the clinical context? And one of my supervisors said, look, practice how you want to practice. Be the doctor that you want to be. And if people like that, then they'll, they'll come to you. And the people that don't like that will move away. You know, there's really eccentric people out there and, um, you know, really gruff people out there that people really like and you know there's a real varied personalities within within medicine and all of them tend to have their own patient following so this particular supervisor said be really comfortable with the kind of doctor that you are and people who like that will come to you and people that don't like that will probably move away and that's okay because yeah exactly like there is there's a totally wide range of doctors and a totally wide range of patients and patients seek out the kind of doctor that suits them. Yes. Um, people who want a short consultation always on time won't come to me. Yeah. <laughs> They'll be disappointed, you know. How is she asking um, how because... I feel all the time and she never said anything. <laughs> <laughs> she just kept breathing. <laughs> 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 
So I think I think that's really true that patients will seek out a doctor that they find easy to communicate with and suits whatever their particular needs are at and that particular time. Yes, and that's okay. And that may change, and that's okay because I used to, when I was a registrar, I used to get really upset. You know, if I thought, oh, some I got a transfer of notes from a patient, or I noticed that they started seeing another doctor, like what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? What all that you know? And I was really self-critical about analyzing everything, and I think being self-critical is very different from self-reflective you know it's really important to be reflective on you know how could I have done it better and and how could I have been more patient-centered and how could I have worked a little bit differently there that's that's not self-critical self-critical is thinking what is wrong about me that has contributed to this exactly and recognizing that being comfortable with okay well people are going to find me and the people that don't want to come and see me, you know, I shouldn't try and work hard at winning over that person because that's not going to be a good therapeutic relationship. And if it's not a good therapeutic relationship, then that person's not going to get the best out of it in the same way that, you know, um, I'm. They, they won't get the best out of me because I'm not getting that connection with them. And so that's okay. It's okay to not be the best doctor for all patients and all people. Exactly. And when you get old like me, Ashley, if you get a transfer of notes, you think, oh, that's a little bit more space in my day. <laughs> <laughs> it can be, it can be, you know, yeah, it's, it's okay. And it may be that time, time for that patient to move on to another practitioner who is going to best suit them at their stage of their journey, you know? Exactly. And yeah. it may be that they're at a point where they've, they've moved on from your style of practicing and and they need the style of practicing of another practitioner. Um, mm. That's been really useful for me to explore that because then once you've got all the clinical skills and you're still learning and developing them over time and changing your practice based on evidence or whatever's happening in the sphere, um, you can then get into what we're talking about in the previous consult about you know developing and enhancing your consultation skills in your own practice and how you want that to look like. Exactly. We didn't talk, Ashley, about um, one thing I'd like to talk maybe is a bit about supervision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of well-being for the practitioner, I find it really fascinating that psychiatrists and psychologists both have part of their college um, requirements are that they have clinical supervision so that's talking about challenging cases with someone from their profession or, or similar profession to kind of get some guidelines about how they're managing them and GPs really don't have any obligation on them to do that but uh, where I've been working at Headspace we've been doing this for a number of years now where we do um, a group of doctors that get together with a facilitator who's skilled at helping us to draw on each other's ideas and strengths to help solve mostly challenging, difficult consultations that we're feeling stuck or are, are not going well. And that's been quite transformational for me in terms of um, my own energy, filling up my bucket of, of what I've got to give to consultations and helping me to feel supported with the some of the more challenging aspects of medicine is having that that place where you can come and 
talk openly and confidentially about things that are challenging and get some support and supervision around that. Um, and it, it's curious to me that most GPs don't do that. But having been doing that for a while now, I can't imagine going back to not having that level of support. And it's something I would encourage other doctors that are maybe feeling a little bit overwhelmed with the consultation management or they're finding that they're getting frustrated, that getting some clinical supervision can be really powerful mm. uh, in restoring your energy levels. I agree. And I guess it's worthwhile to kind of point out how that's different from, you know, a relationship with the GPs in your practice versus a relationship with, say, a supervisor at a registrar level because it is really different. You know, when we're when we're kind of talking to each other, it's it's almost like blowing off steam. You're not you don't necessarily you're not necessarily trying to solve a problem. You're just kind of saying, "Oh, I had this difficult situation," and um, or oh, "I've had such a busy morning, like I haven't had time to eat lunch." And you might be kind of blowing off. You just kind of need to get it off your chest in terms of how you're feeling. And then with a supervisor, that's often a lot about, um, you know, more clinical aspects. And it may be around nuances of the consultation, but it's not necessarily to that depth. And I, clinical supervision is really different where it's often led by someone who's psychologically trained, who, you know, does a little bit of analysis of you <laughs> and then hears you talking about the, per the story and gives you an insight into what it might be like for the other person in the room that you may not have considered because your own core beliefs or proclivities or assumptions are kind of stepping into to lens it in a certain way. And so you get, get these really great insights um, from the other doctors in the room as well. But, um, the you know, often the way that particularly I've experienced it is that the doctors all kind of give feedback and then the the, the person who's facilitating kind of has these little gold gems that come up with it, like after everyone's spoken about it. And it's like, oh. It's like right. a light bulb. Yeah. It's like, oh, why didn't we think of that? Can I just take you around with me in my life and um, you can just, you know, make sense of everything. That, you know? And so I agree with you and that's been one of the things that I've been really keen to in my career Um to see change about our profession is something like that becomes standard. It's interesting in, in Germany, they have a system where they have um, balance groups, which is very similar, although there's not a psychologically trained clinical supervisor in the group, but it's, it's taught through medical school and it's sort of like part of the, the culture is that people sit around um, you know, once a month or whatever, and talk about the process of the consultation and the relational stuff that's happening rather than the drug doses and, you know, what investigations you should be ordering. And I, I yeah, I'd love to see that become part of the normal support for particularly GPs who in their work, I think, are quite vulnerable to burnout and um, do deal with a lot of very challenging psychological aspects of chronic medical care and chronic conditions as well as mental health conditions. Mm. 
So that's really interesting that we talked about clinical supervision and violent groups because at the wellbeing weekend that we're going to be running from the New South Wales faculty is going to cover what and an experiential practice of what this might look like. So participants will come along and participate in a clinical supervision session and, and get an idea of how that kind of process is so it's not particularly foreign and wanting to be incorporated can then kind of take that into their clinical days. So that's really cool. I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I wanted to quickly touch on, and we're running out of time, is something that I've really found has been enhancing my practice of late. And I think reflecting back, getting the structure right in terms of how I want to be practising in terms of patient appointments and interruptions or fittings and time hours of work as well as making sure that I have time to eat well and that I do have lunch and my lunch is healthy and it's not chips and gravy and that I have time to then cook dinner at the end of the night and you know there was a period of time where me and my husband were eating a lot of takeout and having the basis of good nutrition the access to exercise I think is really important and then with that base of support I've actually found utilizing mindfulness-based techniques and in meditation and mindful movements in things like yoga or Pilates have been really helpful of me understanding um feelings and emotions and sensations and the concept of space. So, you know, not kind of getting taken away with your thoughts and being able to concentrate on one task and not multitasking, but also um, being comfortable and having techniques of grounding yourself in a consultation has been really, really useful. It's almost happened for me in a stepwise approach. <laughs> Fix how you do it, how you're working clinically. Make sure you're eating well and sleeping well and exercising and then you've got the, the space to then develop kind of it's like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, really. <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah. I would love to, it's on my bucket list, is to create um, time for meditation daily. And it's something that I don't do at the moment, but I, I just sense and know would be really beneficial. At the moment, my meditative practice is sort of combined with exercise which is half an hour of cycling in the morning by myself which I find quite meditative in itself um, and I must admit that I've been a bit cheeky with my young people I'll often introduce them to a smiling mind app which if anyone hasn't come across it it's an excellent app that is a mindfulness meditation app and um, I'll I'll you know, when you tell someone about something, it you know, it, it's not as, uh, doesn't have as much impact as if you actually sort of show it or do it. So quite often in my consultations, I'll introduce this app to a young person and say, well, why don't we try it together and, and see how it works? And so for five minutes of the consultation, I'll actually be being mindful and meditating in the consultation, listening to the app, which is kind of a bit cheeky, but that's a sneaky way of getting a little bit of mindfulness in probably every second day I do that in a consultation, which is not the same as doing meditation on your own. But 
Um, also, really, I love that, and I do that as well. And, and before being able to implement it in my daily life, um, I, I used to do the same, but not all, not as often as as you would, because I didn't always have the opportunity all the time in consults. But in it's another skill that you can utilize in terms of okay, well, why don't we? If we're a bit feeling a bit stuck as to where to go, why don't we do a bit of a mindfulness-based practice and then see what comes up after that? See if the settling then helps with moving forward. And it's I've actually found it really useful to utilise in a consultation where you know you need that little bit of grounding for both of you, or you can guide somebody through that and it, it really does help to kind of have a where to next. Exactly. Yeah. So maybe I can share with you, Nicola, about how I've incorporated it into my daily. That would be awesome. I started doing it at lunchtime, which was great. It was so good because it was like a truncation between the morning and the afternoon session. Um, but that you you only tend to have the time for that if you're running on time, you've made your lunch <laughs> for the day, you've eaten your lunch, and then there's no outstanding results or notes that need to be written. So, That's not very often. <laughs> So there's certain things that I've been trying to do lately, which is we talked a little bit last podcast about using the computer. So I look at the computer from the beginning and I write myself a little list of my agenda and then I allow the patient's agenda to kind of dictate what's going to happen and then I incorporate little bits of my agenda if we need to. And so I try not to use the computer too much during the consult if I don't have to. And then when they leave, I try and write all the notes then. But I... Um, I you know, use things like autofills or mm-hmm. um, things to kind of make it a little bit speedier. And then I'm finding at the end of the session I'm not having to write 10 notes at once. Mm-hmm. So I've got a bit more time. The second thing is try not to check the, all the results in between patients because that can slow down stuff. Mm-hmm. So I will dip right at the end of the session. I'll check all my, all my results at the end of the session or at the beginning mm-hmm. of the day so that, um, I'm like, okay, I've written my notes, check off all my results, and then I eat my lunch. And then if I have 10 minutes left over before the session starts again, then I, instead of going and talking to somebody or grabbing a tea or, you know, doing something like going on Facebook or checking my emails, I'll prioritise the meditation. So, and if it doesn't happen at lunchtime, what I've been doing is getting home and just saying to my husband, okay, I'm going to do my meditation and doing it straight as soon as I get home. And I think the key to all of that is the intention, mm-hmm. you know, this idea that my intention is to do this every day, so I'm, I'm going to make it happen. And so then and, and then it becomes a habit. Like yes. I no longer have to force myself to get out of bed every morning to take my dog for a walk because <laughs> I've set that habit and I no longer have to make my breakfast in the morning because I've made that a habit now and I'm always having breakfast and I don't I no longer have to um, eat chips and gravy because I've made making my lunch a habit. Do you know what I mean? So and I found that the little steps over time of setting that intention that that's what you're going to do and then building on that once it's become second nature. Yes, and it, what you've described there too, Ashley, is is really useful um, when you're working with patients is just picking on one thing and doing that till that becomes habit and then pick on something else 
and work on that till that becomes habit. Um, you've given me a goal to work on the meditation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe on Mondays we could arrange our appointment book so we have lunchtime at the similar time. And then I could say, hey, Nicola, it's that time for our meditation together. <laughs> uh, I might have to do it not at lunchtime, I reckon. It's about creating that space, isn't it? Coming back to that concept of space in your life that there's enough space for magic to happen. And that's really interesting because I'm finding myself saying that more and more. You know, what are you going to do to be able to do that in your day? What are you going to change or what are you going to do? How are you actually going to do that? What? Not just saying, okay, now you should go for a walk every day for an hour. Like when are you going to go for a walk? What are you, what are you giving up in your schedule now that you would normally have been doing to go for that walk? And for me, I realised a lot of my time was spent watching TV or checking social media or going through emails or, you know, and you kind of go, I don't have to be doing that a lot and I don't have to be reading clinical guidelines all the time. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, like, yeah, I've got this to-do list of reading that I would often be doing that I didn't have to do that all the time and then it actually becomes a lot easier to incorporate that stuff when you need to and you've got your own space. Yeah. I think that's the end. There you go. It was fabulous talking, yeah. Yeah. So should we talk about our resource of the week? Well, my clinical tips about what to do with vulvas, that's probably not right for a podcast. Well, why don't you talk about the vulval resource then? That was an amazing resource. I can't find it because I've got my new computer. Um, why don't you talk about it and then I'll put in the show notes what it is. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, it was an uh, American resource and it – had case studies, possibly about 12. And the thing I really loved about it was it, it just really woke me up to the process and the documentation of a consultation around a vulval issue, how many things there are to cover in history and documentation and examination. And I think... Um, it was it was such a powerful resource for anyone working in women's health or doing vulval dermatology, and uh, probably the the two things that I learnt out of that is any vulval problem that presents, they're recommending at least one to two weeks of soaking the skin in warm water once a day, and then applying a thick layer of Vaseline, which actually re- sort of repairs the epithelial layer. There was no issue that they were not recommending that for out of all the complex issues that were presenting. And the other thing I learned was that you can use um, diazepam, which is a Valium-style medicine, into the vagina for severe spasm of the muscles of the vagina. And I didn't know that before. So that was quite interesting. That's my tip for the week. Mm. So I guess that would be an off-label describing of, of Valium? It is. Um, and it's sort of, I guess, in my practice, I'm often seeing people that have done all the clinical guidelines and are still struggling. Yeah. So it's sort of just broadening your scope of where to next after you've tried all the common things and they're not working. Yeah. And so important to kind of say, you know, this is 
something that in America that they've tried and is useful and is recommended. Yeah, and it's part of a multidisciplinary team with, you know, um, involving gynecologists and uh, physiotherapists specialising in women's health, pelvic floor work. Yeah. Yeah, it was just interesting. I just, yeah, new tip. The Vaseline versus Sorbolene. What do you what do you think about that? Yeah, so I think that's because it's a um, it's a stronger barrier cream, and also it's you know in general things that are more thick and ointmenty are actually better moisturisers. So ultimately, using you know your fifty percent liquid paraffin and fifty percent soft white paraffin is a quite a thick kind of gooey moisturizer that you'd use on a plaque psoriasis or something. The thicker and more ointmenty, the better it is in terms of moisturizing. It's just it's not a very practical thing to put on people's skin, but you can, like a vulva's an area that you could probably get away with with doing that, and it's not going to be as difficult to manage. Your resource. The RSCGP just released the second edition guideline for the management of knee and hip osteoarthritis. Mm-hmm. So it's on my to-do list to read the whole thing, but it was released just in the last month. And can I say I've read the executive summary and the overview and it's really, really useful because it goes through everything that's out there at the moment that people are trying, using or suggesting and it goes through the evidence base and what the overall recommendations are about whether they do it or not and it covers surgery, bracing, you know, glucosamine, hot therapy, shockwave therapy, ultrasounds, walking things, CBT, anything and everything that you can think of about it, it's all in there. So it was really cool to kind of see this really great overview in one one particular resource. Excellent. On the to-do list. So all of your adolescents with osteoarthritis. <laughs> it's not probably that relevant to me at the moment, but you never know. Could be in the future. So thank you so much, Nicola. I really appreciate you chatting. And I think that was a really – that was um, – a really insightful exploration of the topics that we were covering. I thought that was really good. Great to be on the show, Ashley. And stay curious. That's my final tip. Stay curious and open-minded. I'll see you at the Wellbeing Day.